founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are joined by Sarah Brooks, founder and CEO of Covet Public Relations. Sarah is a leading expert in media relations for consumer brands, and in 2014, she set out to create a PR agency like no other, focused solely on brands innovating in the wellness industry. Deeply rooted in founder-led companies, Covet PR has become one of the fastest-growing PR firms in the country by staying ahead of trends and launching industry innovators into household names. Sarah has been a finalist in San Diego Business Journal's Women Who Mean Business Awards and San Diego Magazine's Women of the Year Awards. Covet PR was named PR Couture's 2018 winner, winner of the Brand Communications Award for Startup Agency of the Year. Additionally, she has spoken on many panels across the country, ranging in topics from entrepreneurship to female-led businesses to strong team building. Sarah Brooks, we are so excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, guys. I'm so excited yeah. to be here. Yeah, yes, welcome, we're Sarah. pumped. We got you from coast to coast. We get we yes. get to San Diego today, so that's fun. Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, I'd love to hear where we always start the podcast is just give us a little bit of the background and, you know, what were the series of events that led you to start your company? Sure. Um, so I have been in the PR industry for over 15 years. I, when I started out prior to PR, my goal was to be a talk show host and, and I was shooting for the stars. And so when I was in college and then shortly after college, I really tried to sink my teeth into anything in the TV space. So I worked for MTV doing casting for shows like let's, this is going to date me, but pimp my ride and yes, Room Raiders yes. and um, some of, some of those amazing glory shows of the early two thousands. Um, and then I moved on to E news where I worked in the development department, which was basically hearing pitches for reality shows, um, and after that, I moved to New York where I wanted to work in a magazine. And this was back in like the heyday of magazines where there was there was no more glamorous job than working in a magazine at Condé Nast or Hearst. And I went in an interview and they offered me the job and they said my salary was going to be $18,000 a year, but I would get as many free beauty products and free shoes as I wanted. And I did the math and I thought, okay, I can't live in New York on, you know, Louboutins on an $18,000 salary. So I kind of stumbled into PR. Um, I, I ran into someone who I actually went to college with and I was, I had like 20 bucks left in my bank account. I was three months into New York. My talk show dreams were not panning out. My editorial dreams were going to leave me in poverty. So I was talking to this girl and she said, you know, all the things that it sounds like you want to do, have you ever thought about PR? And I hadn't really thought about PR. And, and she said, I just got this um, email from a headhunter. I'm happy at my job. Do you want to take this interview? And long story short, went on the interview, started at a PR agency and really fell in love with it because so much about why I wanted to be a talk show host is very, um, it, it, you find it in PR, which is hearing about people's stories, figuring out the way to talk about their stories, figuring about the way to kind of create a captive audience. And so PR quickly became my thing. Um, so I was in New York for years at a top agency doing PR for um, consumer products. Okay. 
So consumer products, you know, there's so many ways to do PR. You can do PR for celebrities. You can do PR for tech. You can do PR for so many things. And I really love the product space because if you go to the store, there's a billion products. So it's like, how do you actually get someone to want to buy your product? How do you have a good enough PR campaign to get people to do it? So challenge, I loved it. Did PR in New York, ultimately decided to move back to California and was at another agency here in California that was more so focused on hospitality, but I really love product PR. And I had the opportunity to work on, at this time, this very small, scrappy startup brand called Suja Juice, S-U-J-A, which I'm sure you guys all know now, it's you know the number one organic cold-pressed juice. And this was a time when like you would go to Whole Foods and it was like super crunchy granola people shopping in Whole Foods. And it right. hadn't really kind of exploded to what we see today, which is like wellness is a you know multi-trillion dollar industry. And I just loved it. I love telling the founder stories. Um, the brand took off, Forbes named it the second most promising company um, in the country um, two years in a row and it's on their top five list, which had never been done. And so people were just like, wait, who does who just PR? Ultimately, decided to go out on my own. Um, and that was 2014. And I, I decided to go out on my own largely because I just saw a white space. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs talk about this. They kind of stumble into figuring out what they want to do. And for me, I, w- I was very aware that wellness is becoming something that was not going to be such like an, an inspirational, you have to have a lot of money to do it. It was mm. really starting to kind of like go to middle America. People were becoming a lot more savvy about what they were putting in their body and on their skin. And I looked and there was no agencies out there that was 100% focused on wellness brands. And that's, that's you know, the, the quick story of how it happened. There's some juicier parts in there, but I know we don't have a lot of time, but that's the quick and dirty of how, how I came to start Covet. I love it. And I can't help, but you, you dangled this in front of us, which is that you got to work for MTV and E doing reality <laughs> shows. Uh, and I don't want to spend much time there, but I'm just curious from an insider, is there one thing we should know about reality television? It's not reality. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I, it's funny. So when I was, you know, trying to do this, I was like, I, I want to work on TV. I want to go on TV. So I went on Wheel of Fortune, the real Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. And I was like, maybe I'll get discovered on Wheel of Fortune. Truth about that. The wheel is very heavy to spin. Pat Sajak is very nice. Um, <laughs> And then when I was actually at MTV casting for Room Raiders, they said, one of our people fell through, would you be on the show? So I actually was on Room Raiders. I was the person raiding the room with the black light um, with with three guys. So, I mean, back then reality TV was, you know, maybe 20% of programming and now it's like 80%. I mean, it's really crazy. Um, I think back then it was a little more real, but now, I mean, I think you look at like the bachelor, for instance, people go on there because they know when they leave the show, they're going to have a huge social following. They can endorse products and make millions of dollars that, that didn't exist back then. So I think there was a little more authenticity, um, than what we see today. Yeah. Love it. Just wanted to know, (laughs) (laughs) just wanted to ask. My, my husband feeling. still cannot. I was also on another reality dating show called Dismissed, which was way back in the day where you go on oh, a date with like yes. two guys and one girl. My husband to this day still can't watch any of those. He's mortified for me. I have no <laughs> no shame, but yeah, one day I'll show my kids. Or maybe I, love, I love it. Okay, so let's dive into you uh, starting uh, Covet. And you, you mentioned briefly, you saw what you would consider a white space. 
Um, and in particular in the PR side of that, is that right? That not only was this a new kind of burgeoning industry, but that also there was no one maybe uniquely focused on PR for these types of companies? Yes, I think, yes. And I think, you know, something that I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs about is, um, is there's, I think there's a, a big desire to have people that are specialists versus generalists. And back then PR firms were very general. So you could mm-hmm. come and you could have, you know, automotive, tech, consumer, healthcare, and it's kind of like anything in the world. I give this analogy of, of going to a doctor, like you wouldn't want to go to a dermatologist if you had a heart problem. Mm. Yes, a dermatologist knows enough medical history to do a good enough job, but it's all about being a specialist. And so for me, I thought if all I did was focus on consumer products, I would know the industry inside and out. I would know the key people, not only on the media side, but you know the, the key opinion leaders, because so much about PR is not just about getting media coverage, but it's like being a connector. We're really like a matchmaker between our client, um, the brand and the news cycle, but there's a lot that goes into it. So for me, I looked and it was just general PR firm, general PR firm. And I thought, you know, I'm going to just double down. And it was really hard in the early days because so many brands would come and they had crazy budgets, but they weren't what we focused on. And it was Mm. really hard in the first year to say no Uh, because you had payroll to make. I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, literally no idea what I was doing. Every time I hit the button on ADP to make payroll, I'm like, someone's definitely not getting paid today. I definitely messed up (laughs) someone's W9 something. So so for me, it, it was very enticing to take a lot of money on in the early days. I had people that wanted to invest, which I said no to. I had clients that wanted to work with me, which I said no to because I just didn't want to dilute the integrity of the brand. And I wanted to make sure that I stayed really, really focused. And, it, and I, that's something that not every entrepreneur can do. You, you always have to kind of weigh like payroll, headcount, company morale, along with what your brand is. But mm. if people are coming to covet for the best PR, I had to be really proud of everything I did, probably more so than any other industry. Um, so yeah, it's just doubling down on that niche. And, you know, I was very lucky. I think a lot of entrepreneurship is skills, but a lot of it is right time, right place. Mm. And, um, so for me, it was one of those things where I, I think a lot of things happen at the right time to make it successful, but definitely being very strict in who I took on was a key ingredient. Oh, I love that. So uh, tell me this, how did you, uh, where, what's the size of the, the team now that would make up Covet? Uh, Yeah, so we um, were really, really um, fortunate earlier this year, um, we were at about 30 people when we got acquired. Um, Power Digital, which is a phenomenal full service, you know, best in class um, integrated marketing agency, acquired us um, this summer. And when we got acquired, we were about 30. And now on the covet side, we have about four, I want to say about 41 or 42. Um, So we've grown pretty quickly in the last few months. um, but we're still, you know, hyper focused on the exact same sort of um, client profile as we were before. Yeah. So how did how did the team start? How did you start building when when you decide, okay, I'm going to go from the Suja Juice to Covet's happening? And mm-hmm. you talked about finding this team. Did you did you find it through some you know 1099 connections originally, and that helped you you know move fast? Uh, yeah, how did you I mean. I'll start by saying team is everything, um, everything. It's the hardest part of the business. It's the most important part of the business. It's the part of business that kept me up. It's the part of business that I fought for more than anything else because team is, is what makes your clients come and it would, it would keep your clients. And so 
for me, um, one of, you know, one of my first intern, for instance, um, she's still like, she's like my number two, she's right by my side, kind of helping me with everything. And she was someone who she was right out of college. She said, I still remember like the most amazing cover letter. And she started and I said, listen, I'm not a traditional businesswoman. I don't have an MBA. I don't even have a business plan. Um, but I'm going to teach you everything I know. And you're going to just learn through osmosis. You're going to, I'm going to BCC you on every email response. So you know how I talk to a client. You're going to be silently listening on every call. You're going to be coming to my meetings with me. Um, and I think to this day, that's the best way to learn. I'm, I'm a mm. visual learner. I'm, I learn by doing, not by like reading. And so I took that same approach and I taught her, she taught the next person. And I think that that's been a big secret for success is learning on the job. Yeah. There's two things that you hit that are certainly passions of Drew and I, and in terms of how do we like to get results for our clients, but it's leveraging visuals and just instilling that thought of where could you do some apprenticeship? Because uh, I love some of the the you know, blue collar trades because they still use apprenticeship to teach the welder how to weld or you know yeah. the, the craftsman to get their skill set. But you don't always see it in spaces like, again, the story that you just talked about with, I'm going to BCC you on everything. You're going to be in my meetings. They're like, you are going to take an apprenticeship in how I think and how I operate. I think that's fantastic. And then you hit on the visuals too, which I think is, there's a little bit of like, uh, you know, uh, the majority of people are going to say, hey, I'm a visual learner now, because that's where culture shifted. You know, we all have televisions sitting in our pockets now, and and that's the way that we we learn uh, which I think is just fantastic. Uh, and so is there a way in which um, either visuals or, or kind of the apprenticeship thought has, has apprenticeship even taken off in terms of how you've, how you've built team? Like you did it, yeah. but have you taught that concept to others as, as you've gone? Absolutely. Cause I think, you know, scaling is the toughest thing in running a company because, okay. you know, when I started the company, I was doing everything. I was the account person. I was the, you know, client fire person. I was the payroll person. I was the HR person. And I think one of the toughest things about scaling a company is letting go. Um, you know, they call it, if you if you read traction or any of those yeah. books, like letting go of the vine. And it's yeah. really, really hard to let go of the vine because one, you're just, you can do it faster and probably better than most people because it's your thing. And, but you realize that in order to scale and to, to work more on the business, not in the business, you're going to have to, you know, delegate. And so for me, I think that that mentality of me training a group of people and then that pod training a group of people, um, we still do that today. You know, we, we, and, and now it's like recording videos and it's, and it's because it's, it's much harder for me, especially right now in, in COVID, like we're, we're not together. And so yeah. much of, of PR and, and agency life is about like sitting in the conference room and watching someone pitch and looking at their body language and picking up on subtle cues. And you really can't do that. So we're now being challenged with how to, replicate that teaching by osmosis in a very strange world. And so we're doing yeah. videos, we're still listening to calls. But yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I'm certainly far from perfect, but I, I'm, I'm really good at what I do. And I think people just hearing and listening, I, I, I think that's, that's definitely one of our secrets for success. I love that. When you mentioned Traction, which uh, is a, a favorite book of ours as well, we're both EOS implementers and have done dozens of those for companies. Uh, is that something that you just read, took some of the concepts into your learning and applied, or have you guys leveraged the EOS system? 
Yeah. So we had an EOS coach actually, um, for, we did it for about a year and a half, um, right until, um, right around until we got acquired. And yeah, that was, that was definitely like a a game changer for the business. Um, I'm also a part of something called EO and that's how I discovered EOS. And so having these kind of peer to peer groups that have tried and tested different entrepreneurial tactics is really helpful. And so, yeah, we had someone, we had a great coach come. And, um, you know, I think I agree with 90% of, of EOS and I, and I hear my coach being like, that's okay. You don't, you know, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent. Um, but it was great because I think short of not having like an MBA, it was like a fast track way of how to run a business and how to make decisions and how to take emotion out of things. And, mm. you know, how to, how to basically run your company on something where everyone's speaking the same language. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious around just that even the people side still and thinking through you, Hey, you're, you're doing some training, you're doing some, some osmosis training too, to kind of get around me. But in your world, it's, it's similar to ours and overlap of like, there's, there's a level of brilliance that you need from the people that you have. Like mm-hmm. your, you know, your product a lot of times is you guys brilliance to think differently than someone else or just to, to communicate something. And so it, even as you've thought about or even experienced acquiring, you know, brilliant people, um, what have you, what have you looked for and and kind of how have you, how have you found, man, these are the people that, that actually can come in and just do an incredible job. Or is it one of those where you're like, no, honestly, the brilliance needs to be trained up uh, or is it a little mixture of, of both? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a mixture of both. There's certainly been people over my career who within a few minutes of meeting them, I'm like, they just get it. They're hustlers. They'll say yes and figure it out later. Um, they will attack something, you know, head on. They have incredible work ethic, incredible grit, things that can't be taught. Like none of those things can be taught. You yeah. come to the party with those skills or you don't. Yeah. Um, you know, business acumen can be taught. Certain, certain um, you know, tactical skills can be taught, but those innate qualities can. And so- yeah. For me, I think I, I, at this point, having, you know, interviewed and worked with hundreds of people, like I can pretty, I I think I can see those pretty clearly, but you're always surprised because, you know, one of the things in the interview process is like you, you ask the questions you think you should ask, you do the checks you think you should do, you do the reference check and then the reference of the reference check and you do all the things you're supposed to do. But until someone's really in the job, it is very hard to see. And, um, you know, we've, we've had really healthy debates inside our company. You know, how long do you give someone if you feel like they're maybe not the right person, you know, what is fair and and have you trained them? Have you given them every resource? And ultimately is it just not a, you know, RPRS for some EOS technology from EOS terminology. And Mm -hmm. I think that's, I mean, for me, hands down, that's been the hardest part. I, I, I remember the first time I had to fire someone and I, I ended up promoting them <laughs> because I was uh, so flustered. I was like, and I'm creating a new position. Like halfway through the firing, I created a new position for them because I just couldn't do it. And yes. um, I mean, people for me have been the biggest joy and the biggest challenge is, you know, what yeah. keeps me up at night. I mean, I, I, I've always felt such a t- tremendous amount of um like humility and loyalty that people show up to work for my company and, and do, and it's such like an honor. And so for me, I don't take it lightly and, um, finding the right person for the right seat is probably one of the most difficult, difficult tasks yeah. to do as an entrepreneur. Man. Absolutely. Well, I'm curious too. Well, first I, I'm just impressed by you that you've seen the importance of, 
of your people and the teams and you've stayed in those uh, tension points, right? There's so many uh, great tension points of leading a team. And I'm just curious over, over these years, what have been some of the biggest uh, takeaways for you, maybe in philosophy of building a great team uh, or for some practices that you've really seen get you some fantastic results? Yeah, I mean, I would say this is an evolving, um, you know, path for me because I'm constantly reading and learning. And one of the really great things that I've 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 loved now that I'm part of Power Digital is seeing how to scale because I always I always tapped out at thirty. I was like, I can't go more than thirty. It's too hard. I don't know how you keep the integrity of the product. I like speaking about training. I don't know how you train at that pace. And, you know, I'm now part of this amazing company of over 200 people and I've learned so much. And I think, you know, some of the things that have stuck out to me is like, how do you, how do you teach accountability? Mm -hmm. Um, Because accountability is everything. And, And I think, you know, again, going back to EOS, like one throat to choke, like who's, who does it all come up to? And I think when I look back at the early days, um, I had a hard time enforcing accountability because I, I had a hard time. I, I thought like, oh, well, I can just do it. It's my company. I should just do it. And I mm. realized in doing that, I was cutting people off at their knees and I wasn't teaching them. And so I think instilling accountability, instilling, um, you know, the fact that it's okay to make mistakes, but it's owning up to your mistakes. And then it's, it's talking about your mistakes with the team. So the team can probably learn from them. Um, I think it's figuring out, you know, what makes a good manager and, you know, um, a great book leaders eat last is when I, I love, and I, I, you know, I think to that book and so much about that is like, what is the leadership mentality? First one in last one out. And even if you're, you know, an intern, it's like, how do you instill that mentality in someone who's starting in their career? Because if you do, like, uh, that's what I look for in someone like, like that sort of like, um, grit and tenacity. And I think those sort of qualities, no matter how big you get, if you find those people and they're, and they hold themselves accountable and they admit faults when they do it, but they learn from it like that, that's the A team. And, um, I think that's what we're always shooting for as entrepreneurs surrounding ourselves by people who, who have an, who have an owner's mindset. And I'm always, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, Oh, have an owner's mindset. It's like, okay, but you're, you're, you're taking home all the profit. You know, how do you, how do you instill an owner's mindset (laughs) in someone who's not, you know, and I, and I think that's when you're not an owner and it's like, you shouldn't really expect someone to have that. But when you find people that naturally have that, not because you ask, but that's just how they're, they operate. That is such a special quality. And those are the people that in my book will always get rewarded when they're not wanting or they're not asking it. It's because they're showing up and they're doing the job without, you know, doing it because they want to do it. And that, I mean, that's just really hard to find. And so when you find those people, Mm. you hold on to those people. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And there is a difference in expecting them to fully embrace an owner's mindset as if they were owning the company, leading the company versus I think what you're talking about should be a no-brainer is owning yourself right? That you are owning your performance, you're owning the things that are under your purview that you're being paid for. And there's a strong ownership of that. I mean, that's, that's just like human growth, you know, like whether you're in marriage or parenting or business, like you own you and have accountability. And what I'm curious about for you is often if that's a learning curve for a leader. So other, you know, other leaders that maybe naturally hold people accountable might have to learn how to embrace more support, you know, being more empathetic, um, extending more grace versus some people that start naturally on that side. Sounds like you Mm -hmm. extending grace, extending, you know, goodwill, and you have to move towards accountability. Sometimes that's an emotional journey, 
where mm-hmm. for some reason it feels either scary or you might feel guilty or uncomfortable mm-hmm. holding someone accountable. Um, I know that was, that, that's my personality. Like I have to move mm-hmm. towards accountability and it was an emotional journey for me. I had to like kind of work out in my head how this is okay for me to say, Hey, you said you're going to do this. Did you do it? And mm-hmm. it, for whatever reason that felt confrontive or it felt like, uh, um, totally. and so I wonder what, if that, what would that, that was like for you and how you work. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that what for sure still one of my biggest challenges is, you know, uh, it's, it's figuring out the balance between being a strong, tough, great leader versus being a micromanagey, non-trusting, you know, leader, because people, yeah. people don't quit jobs. They, they quit managers, they quit leadership. And, and right. I think for me in the early days, I had the, I had the wrong idea that, um, me, you know, jumping in to answer a client question, if, if the team was on the email actually was me telling the team, I don't, I'm not confident that you can answer this. When yeah. in my mind, I was like, I'm helping, I'm taking the, it, that email came in at mm-hmm. nine o'clock at night. I don't want my team to work late, but, but I, and I had some staff that like over the years showed up and said, like, I know you're probably doing this because you work so hard and you <laughs> care, but like, let us be the one, let the client have trust in us. And it was really hard for me to let go. And I was always coming from a good, good intention, but people can't grow unless they're pushed and challenged. And, Mm. um, I look back to, you know, some of my toughest conversations with staff and I look at where they are today. And I, I, and I think it was pushing them and, and challenging them. And do you just have to do it with empathy, you know, and you just have to do it in a way where you don't sound like a a jerk, but, but I'm right there with you. I, I think, um, you know, whether it's because I'm a woman, whether it's because whatever, I'm just, I, I, it wasn't in my DNA to be like that. And I actually look back to my first boss and I'll never forget being in her office. And she's like, what is this media list? Do you even know what you're doing? And never again did I mess up on a media list. And there was probably a better way to do it. But 20 years later, I still think back to that moment, which is proof that like you often learn the most when you're being challenged. Absolutely. Well, I think it's for me, I resonate with this, even at the personal level, uh, I have two older sisters and a loving, caring mother, right? And so I was the baby boy with three very nurturing kind of leader figures in my life that stepped in often and did things, right? Like stepped in and handled problems or, and I noticed later in life, like there was a slower or a longer learning curve for me in a lot of areas that I just never felt empowered to make decisions or handle my own drama or whatever. And that's how actually helped me as a leader think more in terms of accountability being an avenue for uh empowering versus about a blame game right so like sometimes we think accountability is about like a gotcha moment and that's not really in a good leader's mind it's more about empowering you like i want you to feel like you can work through this or that you can be trusted with even more and we can learn from this and that kind of thing and that helped me emotionally lock in and say like no this is this is a part of creating autonomy in you Mm-hmm. And that that can actually be an act of love versus feeling yeah. like I have to like remove love and be hard. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I, I totally. We we I read Radical Candor probably like three times because yeah. that book that book really teaches you how to lead and guide with empathy and and the difference yeah. you know the differences in 
in how to deliver a message and the best way to do it. And I, you know, we did a workshop with the team because it's one, everyone needs to be on the same page. You can't give radical candor if someone doesn't know how to, how to accept radical candor. So for us, we did, we did a workshop, you know, and at that point we were 30 women and we were, you know, right or wrong, like very much accustomed to like, dancing around the uncomfortable truth and trying to, you know, say something that could take two senses and 20 senses, try to soften Mm -hmm. the blow or do the sandwich theory. And you read that book and you realize you're actually, you're actually like not giving people their full opportunity to grow. And so I think there's, I I think there's certain books like that, that have been really good tools to help have a tough conversation and, and to lean into those teachings. Yeah. Yeah. I found that one to be fantastic. That's exactly what we're talking about. The, again, the care personal care personally and challenge directly. Just that framework is a great yeah. framework to guide. Is yeah. there uh, and maybe just before we move on, like digging into the teach accountability piece, I think that is really cool that you've, you've been able to see and grow a successful company on your own. And then you've also been able to be a part of this additionally successful uh, company who's also growing fast and has figured out some scaling pieces and accountability is one of them. Any other lessons like specific on the tactical side inside of like, how do I actually teach accountability um, that we haven't touched on yet? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that when you're at a company that's 200 plus, you obviously, you know, one of the one of the not so fun parts is you don't know everyone like you used to know everyone. You know, I would have people over for dinners and and all of this too, you obviously have to look through the lens of COVID. And so I think a challenge for any company right now is like how to keep culture and how to keep connection mm. when you haven't seen your coworker for months. And, you know, when we did the integration, it, it was it was a lot of hard work because we were integrating virtually. We're coming, you know, these 30 publicists are becoming part of this big company and none of them had met anyone. And now you're reporting to someone and there's just a lot of things where you realize how you, you, you realize how beautiful it was to be able to pop into someone's office and say, Hey, can I get five minutes with you? And so I think, um, Scaling is going to be, you know, a challenge for any company, but I think it's probably compacted by now, right now, by the fact that you're adding people to the team that don't get the benefit of seeing how amazing culture is. And it also forces us to redefine what culture is because for so long, it was like, you know, having, you know, a keg in your office and having cold brew on tap and having a pool table. And like, we now know that's not really culture. And so it, yeah, it's yeah. it's an interesting time, I think, for any entrepreneur, whether you're scaling or growing. It's just how to how to keep con- connectivity in this very strange time. Yeah, it is just a few things because we've hit on them, uh, which it just Drew and I have found is fascinating. We talked about number one reason why people like disengage or even quit their jobs is the boss, right? Is like the leader, the manager. Yeah. Other one is, is the job that matters, but the culture and the team. We've talked about culture and team. Those are your yeah. your major your major four that they quit. And I do think it is interesting within COVID. We've had that. We've, I mean, we're a, a smaller team, team of five, but as we've added, it is just so interesting. We're like, man, when we added these other team members, the fact that we were just smaller made it easier and now we're larger, but they also got to like, their first interaction with us was in person and was like together and we laughed together and we had these additional experiences yeah. outside of the interview, outside of the job responsibilities, outside of like, we, we created a story together that created a personal connection that was allowed, allowed them to kind of graft into culture. And it, it has been really challenging to think through like, man, how do you help this person? Like get that little extra piece that yeah. builds 
that semblance of trust or that even just that sense that you can call me whenever so that I don't feel like your boss where you're like, Hey man, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Are you like, I'm like, no, like I told you yeah. to call whenever, but you never got to see that culturally that that was okay. And that has been a, a challenge, anything creative that this come out in, in the COVID space uh, or is it yeah, just like it's funny? I was, I was just slacking with a coworker yesterday and it was like, I was like, we have to be able to create like, you know, old school was meeting in person. New school is like, like virtual zoom, but everyone's getting so fatigued of that. It's like, what is, what is, and maybe this doesn't exist. I'm like, but what's the new frontier of connecting in like a time like this? Because I think, um, it's really like, I remember when, when COVID first started and I was like, everyone show up to zoom meetings with your makeup on and your hair done and looking professional and real pants on, even if we can't see your pants, like it, because so much of like how you show up is like how you act. And like by month two, I was like taking a zoom call from the bed, like nursing (laughs) my baby, looking like I've been hit by a car because it's just hard. It's like, it's, it's like draining to yes. like, you know, it's like you're sitting in this room and there's sounds and you're distracted. And so I don't think I've, I've nailed, you know, new techniques that other people haven't thought of. Um, but I, I think that you know, we do virtual coffees and virtual happy hours with the team. But even those, I mean, candidly, are probably getting a little old. So I think yeah. right now the name of the game is just resilience. And, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, people, we're, we're here in San Diego and we have teams all over the country, which is which has been actually a great plus of COVID. Yeah. We had this mentality before that unless you had a physical office, you wouldn't hire someone that didn't live in that city. And there was mm. so much good talent in places like South Carolina and places where you historically would never look to find people. And these people maybe worked yeah. in New York and worked at big firms and wanted to move to have a better lifestyle. So a plus of COVID certainly has been our talent pool has completely just expanded. And we now have yeah. people working in Montana. We have people all over the country that who knows, we may never ever meet even when this is all done. Yeah. But I think that's been a great thing is it's, 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 it's taught us entrepreneurs. Like some people were very close-minded and didn't think you could do it. And it's like, wow, you can do it. And it's a new way to think about how to, how to have a really great team. Oh, I yeah. love that. That that came up uh, maybe in one of our last one or two. Yeah interviews where we were talking about the forced innovation of COVID, uh, which was kind of my my word to our team when we first hit COVID. And I said, man, guys, crisis is can be a catalyst for forced innovation, where things that maybe areas that needed to innovate, but there was some fear or there was some comfortability in the status quo. When the status quo gets disrupted, it forces innovation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And this is something we saw in the coaching space. So we're, we are uh, um, coaches for fast growing companies and yeah. already we were doing zoom calls on the regular for our clients across the country. Yet the older generation really thought of that as like a, you can't do that. Like you've got to be in mm-hmm. person, you've got to fly out there to meet with people and you can't get the same results. And we're like, I don't know if that's true. Like we do this every day yeah. and we're seeing great results. And now the whole industry knows it because they were forced to, to do yeah. Zoom and they realize, sure, there's some, some, you know, some benefits to being in person, but a lot of this can be carried over the internet. Um, yeah. And then the same with hiring. We're seeing so many people saying like, my talent pool just exploded because I was only looking in a 30 mile radius of our headquarters for people that could commute in. And now I'm able to look across the country for people that could log on. Right. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think that's really neat. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, a hundred, a hundred percent. I think you know the phrase like "innovator die" is so true in in any industry, mm-hmm. but especially agency life. And um, it's it's humbling when like you think, for instance, like when we would pitch a big client, we would spend thousands and thousands of dollars on flying out there and fancy dinners and like the fact that we've won a lot of big clients and it's been virtually like, I'd rather give that money to the team. And you used to think like you look back at like Mad Men and you think back to like the old days of advertising and like so much about that was like spending obscene amount of money to woo someone. And I kind of like now that it all comes down to like your, your work product and that there's, there, the, there's not kind of these blurred lines and it, it forces you, I think, to polish off how you do things because you have to be that much, you have to be that much smarter, that much more strategic because you don't have the ability to like have that in-person time. And, you know, in the world of PR, you know, publicists are, are, we're, we're, we're like natural salespeople. We don't even mean to be salespeople, but that's just like a quality that I think we have. We know how to communicate with people. We know how to get people to want to buy what we're saying. And it's, it's challenge us to basically be like, okay, all these skills that maybe we could do in person, how do they come across through a computer? And so it definitely, I think there's, there's been a lot of silver linings through, through COVID, a lot of challenges, but a lot of silver linings as well. Man, it just makes me think of earlier, uh, just a few minutes ago, we're talking about basically autonomous people, right? Like people that hold themselves accountable, that you can trust, you can rely on. And I think today with the majority of people having to work from home online if you have a force of people if you have a a, if you have a company of people that are self-motivated self-guided do it figure it out yourself kind of people that's a competitive advantage right because if you if you were someone that relied on needing to walk in every five minutes to your coworker or your boss's office to ask another question another question you're screwed now like you're by yourself. You're, you might not, you, you know, you might not know how to motivate yourself to get out of your PJs and to get on the computer and do work when no one's looking. So if you have those kinds of people or you can cultivate those kinds of people, that's got to be a huge competitive advantage in this, in this time. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when, when, when um, COVID first happened, you know, we're like, okay, how do we monitor if people are really working from home? Like, do we put on like Slack software to see like if they're dormant for a while, does this yeah. mean they're slacking off? Like you started to get real big brothery just thinking like, how, how are we going to make sure? And then very quickly we realized people are either going to do the job or they're not. And yeah. And, you know, there's also something beautiful in that, like the old work hours, like nine to five, like we don't really care as much, like get your job done. Exactly. We have parents who are working and it's like, get online when you need to get online. And it's, it was very clear, you know, who can be accountable and who can work well autonomously and who can, and it kind of just like those people weeded themselves out. And at the end of the day, it, it, it showed us like really like it, it, it really forced us as business leaders to change the old school ways of thinking about how to have an office, how to have a team, how to have work hours. Yeah. Well, if you think about too that idea of like clocking in and clocking out and how that used to make a ton of sense when hours yeah. actually did represent product. Right. Yeah. So it's like if you yeah. were there that long, you got that many things done on mm-hmm. the assembly line or you packaged that many things. And so like time equal dollars. But now most industries aren't built off of that. And yet we're still kind of paying based on that. And so people are wildly inefficient and yeah. just kind of going through the motions when they could be saving themselves time 
and you totally. time, if you more measured, like, did you get done what we need you to get done? You know, yeah. don't care if it was done in an hour yeah. or 10 hours. Like it's the value that you provide to the yeah. company is what we're tracking. That's how it's been for our team. Like, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with anyone on our team about like, how long did you work today? Or when did you take off? Yeah. It's yeah. just like, did, where are you at on the thing that we, <laughs> that we put it's on so, your plate? I mean, the whole adage, you know, work harder or work smarter, not harder. It's like, we've always said that, but like now it's really, really true. I mean, it's like yeah. everyone has the same amount of hours of the day. You know, my husband and I always joke, it's not working from home. It's, it's, you know, work, what it's, it's, what did he say? It's I'm not work from home. It's like sleep from work or something because you're in this time, like you're just wake up and you work. And, yeah, and work. It, I think that, that, yeah, that, that I do think has been a bit of a challenge because there it's hard to turn off right now. Like you, yeah. there is a, there's something nice about the physical separation of an For office. Sure. Um, I mean, we all probably, you know, logged on before and after, especially on our phone, but there is something that's like, okay, the day is starting, the day is ending. I can be with my family. And now, you know, it's, it's much harder. So I think it's also mm -hmm. taught us how to defend our time and how to put better barriers on work life because everything just blends right now. Yeah. Or yeah. at least it's challenging. Yes. I, I bet I know myself included. I don't think I've mastered. I don't think I've mastered that talent. Like my wife was even saying like, you used to be a lot more relaxed on the weekends. And yeah, I, I, my, I had two thoughts. I was like, well, I used to be an employee and <laughs> yeah. that yeah. made it, that made yeah. it that much helps. easier to relax on a yeah. weekend. Uh, so uh, the other part though is COVID. Like you get in this mindset of like, I could technically be working at any time. I could yeah. be thinking about something. And like, I have a friend I work out with at the gym who's a restaurant owner. He owns multiple restaurants in Atlanta. And when I found out where they were, they're in Alpharetta and he lives down in Peachtree City. I was like, why are you living here? This is pre-COVID. And yeah. he was like, because I need the, I need the forced separation where yeah. if I live down the road from my restaurants, I'd get called in all the time. Yeah. And I like driving back. And that's actually been his biggest challenge now is that force separation is gone, yeah. you know? So now we're all, I think we're having to innovate and be like, how do we place those boundaries? Yeah, Absolutely. Sarah, I'm curious about, curious about this because to us, you're like a superhero. Like you're a CEO and you're a mother of two and you're having to work from home, you know, which this whole story is like, man, you know, we have it, I have, we have it challenging, but like you feel like a, a superhero to us. And so what like... <laughs> What have you learned in terms of like, just take us through even like kind of your daily routine. Like, how do you go about your day? How is it? How have you found it work for you so that you can do all the, all the roles yeah. that you have to do? Well, most days are a shit show. Let's yeah. just keep it real. Like <laughs> yes. most days, most yeah. days I'm just trying to survive. Um, yeah. I mean, I think back to 2020 because um, my son was born in February and I was going through the due diligence of finalizing the acquisition and it was supposed to close. And then like a week or two before it's supposed to close, co close COVID hit and everything was off. And I had been spending time and money and resources and effort. And I just had a new, like, I literally had a newborn baby and it was like a super dark time. I was like this, you know, the world was dark. Everything I've been kind of working for was dark. And I kept it very private because it's never, it's never final until it's final. And now I really know that. And then I had no choice, but to just like dig in deep and, you know, stay focused on the business. And then the business luckily did well. And then the deal was back on. 
And so when I like think back of like Q1 and Q2, like I, I, I do feel very proud that like I endured and, and went through it because having, you know, we have a tiny house, we have two small kids. It was, it was a lot. And mm. I actually have so much respect um, for, for any parent working from home right now, because it is, it is really, 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 really challenging. And it's challenging because you want to also be with your kids. Like they don't understand. I shut the door and they don't understand. Um, Sorry, real life. You probably can hear the lawnmower. Um, Shut the door, but like they don't understand why mommy can't play. So it's been tough, but but I will say my day now is much more enjoyable because I'm just around the kids more. So my my day starts at like 5.15, 5.30 um, when the kids wake up. And then, you know, from 5.30 to 8 is my time with the kids. It's breakfast. It's getting them ready. It's watching the 11th millionth episode of Fancy Nancy, doing whatever we need to do so I can get ready. My husband and I take turns. And then I, I, I'm on from eight to five. And then at five, I try to really have a hard stop. And then from five to eight with the kids again. And then, you know, it's nice because I can go downstairs and have lunch, but it's hard. They're little, they don't really understand like mommy's oh, yeah. here, but she's not here. And so there's some days that they have temper tantrums outside the door. Um, there's some days I, I told this story right when I had my son, I, I was like nursing on every Zoom call, but I turned the video off except the one time I didn't turn the video off and I thought the video was off and I'm like up here in the video and my client is a good friend and he texts me. He's like, Sarah, your video's on. Everyone can see like, maybe you're cool with that. And I was like, Oh my God. So I've definitely, I've definitely had mortifications um, throughout this, but you know what? We're all just trying to do what we do. And I'm, I'm so lucky that I have a nanny because I know people that have no childcare help. I mean, that would just be impossible. Um, I'm I'm on day like eight or nine of quarantine because a family member got COVID and we're okay, but we didn't have our nanny come. And like, it has been a real shit show the last week and a half because there's no help, but plenty of parents do this every day and they're the real superheroes. Gosh, absolutely. Yeah. So a thought is like, what's, uh, if you get a chance to recharge, what's a go-to recharge thing for you? Not like, uh, just get out, but like on a, like a weekly daily basis, like, What's the thing that like, this is kind of my recovery. Yeah, I, I probably running. Um, and, and it's one of the things, especially during COVID that like gives me a sanity break. Um, so I'll do, and I'm, let's just be honest, I'm not going on 10 mile runs. I'll do like a three mile run around the neighborhood. Um, yeah. that, that to me is like my biggest stress breaker. I, I tried so hard to meditate so hard, just really, yeah. really tough <laughs> for me. I want it to my work. Brain t- I wanted it to work. My brain just is going too much, but I, I, yeah. I will sometimes get in moments where I can meditate. Um, but for me, you know, right or wrong, like I, I don't really think about me time in this time, like right now it's survival mode. So, but running is my like 30 minutes a day where I can kind of just put on music and, and not have a care in the world. Uh, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Similarly, the, uh, the meditation tends to be a discipline for me, not necessarily a, re- a resting recharge yet. Yeah, um, it's, practice, practice. it's still on the I need to get back into that status for me. <laughs> yes. Yes. I will say what I have noticed that's been helpful for me is kind of understanding the difference between the task mode network and the default mode network of our brains. And if I'm too, too far or too long in the default mode network, which would be like a weekend where there's nothing but kids and empty space, that can be not a recharge for me. 
And so finding somewhat enjoyable tasks, whether that's working out or doing a project at the house or something actually is recharging for me. I've noticed like if I get my brain focused on something mm -hmm. that's not incredibly difficult, that doesn't involve work, that's not like analytical, but does keep you kind of focused. Um, that's been really recharging for me. And that was, that was a big one. Yeah, I think it was Warren Buffett who like, he has like seven or six or seven hours blocked on his calendar each day of like think time, you know, and that's something that yeah. like most entrepreneurs don't do. You see a calendar and it's like, you know, book from seven to five with meetings. It's like, but when do you actually get to do the, the magic? When do you get to do the fun work? When do you get a dream? And so I am always challenging myself on my team, like block times where you just can kind of like think yeah. because that's really like what our sweet sauce is. Anyone can do meetings, but it's having the freedom to actually do the creativity. Yeah. And even knowing when you have that time, like how do you use it? Well, you know, mm -hmm. that it's not killing time, but it's, it's maybe kind of taking a walk about on some areas of, frustration or challenges in the business and trying to get up above it and saying like, yeah. what outside the box thinking could I have around this issue? Right. Yep. I love it. Uh, so I, you brought something up th that being a cool or, or critical habit that maybe most entrepreneurs miss. Are there anything else? Is there anything else you've found that you would say, man, this habit or this, you know, practice, uh, is something that I discovered and it really helped me as a, as a, founder as a leader um anything else like that that fe has felt like a critical yeah i mean it took me six years to figure this one out but i finally went on a real vacation where i literally did not check into email for a week mm. um and i my hands are like arthritic when i came back i like couldn't even type like it was like i didn't even know what to do but it was beautiful because i had i was just so recharged and i think we have this like this mentality, like where people don't want to take time off because it, it looks good and they're always going, 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 and they're always working, but that's such a detriment. And I find now like really separating myself. And that's not just like taking off an hour or two a day. It's like literally like being in a new environment and not working. I came back like guns, like guns a blazing. And so mm. it took me a long time to figure that out. I almost thought it was like a sign of weakness. If I took time off, it's like, I don't need to take time off. I can keep going. But you actually yeah. realize like you're you're starting to not be your best self and your your work isn't as strong as it could be. So for me, um, I, I I now really enforce that in the company, like take time off. The work will be mm -hmm. here when you get back. You know, you I think back to the days I started PR, like you didn't have, there weren't smartphones. Like we faxed press releases. The world kept on going and no one was doing work at night because That's no right. one had access to work at night. Yeah. And it's like, we're somehow in this mode where it's like you have to work 24 seven but the work will be there when you wake up in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that's been a big topic of discussion on the podcast as well. So I'm glad you're bringing this up, but it's the relationship to stress. So we've had several founders on here who even had uh, pretty severe complications in their physical health mm -hmm. as a result of stress and realized if I don't change this relationship, like this is going to kill me. One, one was almost blind at like age 40. He was, wow. felt something in his eyes. Yeah. Yeah, he started to go blind wow. and was able to reverse it by, you know, recharging and uh, having a different relationship to stress. But what, one of the things we talk about is there's there's often two gutters that people can fall into, like two opposite mistakes. Like one is the, the type of personality that overly avoids stress, right? Yeah. And we see that probably in the wellness industry where it's like mm -hmm. really um, – it's really cool to say like, I don't have stress. Like I've removed stress from my life, you know, like yeah. 
And it's like, okay, well, that's a mistake because stress yeah. properly done provides growth. It's, mm -hmm. it's just a weight to work out with that makes you stronger. And so you're going to atrophy and get really bored if you've removed all stress from your life because kids are stressful. Relationships mm -hmm. are stressful. You know, like business is stressful. But the other one is the worship of stress where yeah. that's kind of the culture that you found yourself in, uh, probably not directly, but almost indirectly feeling like it's a badge of honor to be busy. It's yeah. a sign of, of, of success if I'm stressed and I feel guilty. And that's why I was telling someone the other day, they said, um, I had to give this, I was doing a coaching call with an executive and he just mentioned, um, to give myself permission. I'm realizing now I can give myself permission. I can forgive myself for when I need to take a 30 minute break. And I said, man, you're using, you're using church language, right? <laughs> like you use the word forgiveness and permission when it came to wow. a break. I was like, that means you worship stress or like you, you, you feel like it's yeah. almost a God in of itself. And I'm like, hold on rest or stress plus recovery equals growth. That's from the peak performance book. And if you look at that in athletes as well as musicians or business people, like you have to calibrate both when you're working hard yeah. and then when you're recovering to get the results yeah. and you coming back from that vacation, feeling recharged and ready to rock is a perfect example better. of I'm better fresh. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think we all, we always talk, especially when you're a mom and an entrepreneur about like balance. And I think balance is sadly fictitious. I think it's just an ebb and flow. Yes. And I think you are never, I, I rarely had days where I wake up. I'm like, everything's feeling great today. Like I just, I, and maybe that's my <laughs> perspective, but like, there's always a problem that needs to get put out. There's always something, but it's figuring out how to like maintain like a balanced approach to life, but not necessarily seeking balance. Cause I think when you seek balance, you'll be disappointed. And then it creates a self-fulfilling yeah. mm -hmm. like letdown and then your serotonin decreases. And so I think mm -hmm. it's just having the right frame of mind that like every day is going to be a challenge, but it's, it's how you show up and having yeah. the right expectations. Yeah. It's interesting. Like a, just a random like world occurrence that talks about that stress plus recovery equals growth. I was listening to Ron, Ronnie Coleman. He's a American bodybuilder, eight time yeah. Mr. Olympia, you know, and he just talked about uh, somebody was challenging like either a squat record or a deadlift record, some type of thing like, Hey, could you have beaten that record? You know, some thousands of pounds. And he, he was like, yeah, I think I could have, it would have taken me a lot more rest days. Like that was the mm. thing. It was taking me much more focused on that thing and many more rest days. And just that sense of like, hey, if I want to be the strongest person in the world, I would I would have needed to take more days off than I did. And I just thought I was like, man, that is that's gotta be a mind-blowing thing for people to go. If you want to be the strongest in your thing, you might want to think about how do you take as much recovery to balance out what's that yeah. thing you're trying to be an expert in. Oh, that was fascinating. Which is hard. Yeah, it's hard for entrepreneurs to think that because I think we're kind of born and bred like go, 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 work harder, faster, longer. And and I mean, yeah. burnout is such a thing. And I mean, yeah, I don't think we talk about it enough. But like, you know, uh, my biggest thing is as leader at company is like, is protecting our employees. And that and yeah. that's largely like looking at the person who's going 12 hours a day and being like, listen, you're producing a great amount of value for the company, but you need to you need to take some time because people, mm. it's also this millennial thing. I mean, I, I, I don't want to sound like a, like this old lady, yeah. but like, I think it's this millennial culture where it's just so, so competitive. And I think people equate rest and, and taking a, uh, taking a second with like weakness. And that's such the mm. wrong perception. Yeah. Well, again, this, what, what stands out to me is both in the Ronnie Coleman thing, as well as in the book, they talk about Roger Bannister, 
um, beating the four minute mile. Like he was the first human being to ever run a mile in under four minutes, which is freaking wild, right? And up mm -hmm. until then, in all of human history, we had thought one way about growth, and that was stress. So for mm -hmm. years, he kept failing by seconds, like missing the record by seconds. And his response was to work harder next year. And so he would train longer. He would run further. Like literally, his only thought was, you just got to work harder. And then after like the third year in a row of missing it, I don't know if it was by purpose or by accident, he took off three weeks before his meet. So he'd been training all year and he took off three weeks, went on a family vacation to the mountains somewhere in Europe. And he came back and he said, when he stood on the start line, he knew he was going to break the four minute mile. And they asked him why. And he said, because he realized in, in, in that moment that he had never felt fresh before. And that like, he didn't know what fresh felt like because all he had felt was sore, tired, but you get used to that. And when he stood on the start line that time, he was like, oh, my God, I actually feel fresh. This is what fresh feels like. And mm. he crushed the four-minute mile by taking time off. And so wow. that wasn't just like a moment in time. It literally changed sports uh, psychology. It, it changed yeah. how they train athletes. It, all of that began to shift all the way up to Ronnie Coleman now in bodybuilding saying, mm -hmm. I would have taken more days off. So that's kind of a wild yeah. swing in human understanding yeah. around performance. So interesting. Uh, I love that. So switching gears a little bit, this is uh, this is definitely in the abstract creative kind of question for you, but because you uh, run a PR firm and you're in that space of how do I communicate people's stories, um, one of the things that matters a lot in Drew and I's coaching practice is, is we know that uh, the story that you tell yourself oftentimes trumps the story that you tell the world, right? When it comes to why do why does a person in their, their personal performance, like why do they self-sabotage? Oftentimes, it's not the story that they're telling everybody else. It's that story they've been telling themselves internally that's actually, uh, again, kind of that, that shit story that ends up sending them into just a, a little bit of a downward spiral. Talk about it as a doom loop uh, when we're communicating it. But I was just thinking about either for the sake of, of brands or, or just how have you, have you seen that, that the, the story that you're telling the world, and this is the world, you know, this is the story that we want to tell for the brand, but actually the story that they were telling themselves internally within the team or within the leadership, you know, has that ever gotten them in trouble? I'm, I'm just interested. Is, is there a correlation there that you've seen on kind of a larger brand scale that, that we see for the individual is it's not necessarily a story that's being projected out. A lot of times it's that internal story that's trumping everything that we're trying to do on the outside. Right. You got to right. get that straightened up first. Um, do you ever see that in, in your work more on the, the larger scale team? Uh, yeah, I think, I think, I think I, I would maybe, you know, say it a little differently, which is, I think one of our jobs as publicists is to like find the story and yeah. a client will come to us thinking this is their story. This is their narrative. And, you know, I, for instance, have the unique opportunity where I have talked to hundreds and hundreds of brands over the last few years. And I can now very clearly figure out in a very quick amount of time, like what really is their story? What is the reason to buy? Why, why, why is this brand different than 300 other coconut waters on the market? And so I think it's having that just like objectivity and being able to tell the forest from the trees. I think when yeah. you're in it, it's very, very hard to have perspective because whether it's this self-fulfilling prophecy or this loop that you've had about who you are and what you are, um, that's where having an expert in anything. I mean, that's why people go to therapy. That's why people, yeah. you know, have professionals on their payroll because it's really, really hard sometimes when you exist in your own 
body and you, you are so invested in one thing to just have objectivity. So where we come at it is more so like, what are the messages that we want to get across to the consumer? And oftentimes it's not what the client initially thought. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love just to know, um, on that note from, from people listening to this podcast who are founders of their company, um, what, uh, what are some ways that we can think about telling our story to the world or what are maybe some, some things you've seen help or some mistakes that people make when you come in and you take over that element of the business that you are going to now be, you know, thinking through their, their public relations side, their to the degree, their marketing side. Uh, I would love just to get some wisdom on that as we're, as we're people are here growing their business. Yeah. I mean, I think what I always tell people is what, you know, we all know about our elevator pitch, but what's actually that headline. So, I mean, everything right now is clickbait. Like a long time ago, journalism was very separate from sales and it was very much a church and state relationship. And now when you look at the media cycle, um, there's affiliate, there's all these things now where kind of the lines are a little blurred. And so in a way it's forced us as publicists to get really, really data driven. And to also think like, what is this headline that your mom would click on your best friend would click on your investor would click on and, and how can you say everything about who you are and what you are in, in a really like nice soundbite. And so for us, I think that's something we're always trying to challenge our clients with. Like, what is your reason for existing? And could you fill in any other brand in this headline? Or are you the only brand that can own it? Um, like, you know, a year or two ago, it was like, oh, we're the Uber of. Now it's like, we're the beyond meat of, you know? And it's like, what? so people tend to like gravitate towards trends, which is great. But like, we always challenge our clients, like, how can you create, how can you be the pioneer of, and what is that secret sauce? And how can we help introduce that to the world? Yeah. Yeah. So is there, um, are there certain elements of a brand's identity or story that you find most important for them to probably discover, right? So I, I assume part of your job is actually helping them discover and articulate certain elements of, yeah. of their brand. What, 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 what is kind of most important for that? Well, for us, for us, we focus on founder-led, mission-driven brands. So we, we do a lot of work with the actual founders. Okay. A lot of PR firms are just like promoting products. We're actually like, we're, we try to tell a much more holistic story because, you know, what is the why? Why did you create this product? Why did you, you know, quit law school, you know, two months shy of graduating because you felt so committed to bringing this product to the world. And we do a lot of workshops with founders because I think, and one of my, you know, a thesis that I had for starting Covet was that people are not just buying products based on packaging and marketing. They actually care more and they, they want to like support the person behind the product. They want, they want to know the why. So a lot of what we do that I think separates us from other agencies is we look at, we look at a brand completely 360. And a lot of that starts with the person behind the brand. Love it. Are there, are there, particular questions that you find to be really helpful? Like if someone was listening to this, like obviously option A, best option would be to hire you or someone like you, <laughs> right? Uh, but if they're just a founder listening to the podcast right yeah. now and their brains going like, what are a few questions that are really good to noodle on that lead to some great answers? Yeah. I mean, something I tell all people, clients or not clients is like, know, know your competitors and become obsessed with your competitors. So, you know, setting up Google alerts so you can see what are the narratives and who is covering them and how are they covering them and then looking for white spaces. So, you know, being, being so aware of the messages and then being like, okay, what do I have that this person doesn't? And then how can I create the messaging for that? So 
Um, also figuring out like what makes a good story, because if you can't afford a PR firm, there's still lots of ways to get PR on your product. And a lot of that is reading the news outlets that cover your brand. So if you're an entrepreneur, you know, reading the fast post and the inks and the New York times and figuring out, you know, who are those editors that are continually writing about thought leaders in your space and then figuring out ways. There's lots of ways that you can get great PR without an agency. Um, I mean, you can DM someone on Instagram, an editor on Instagram and, and start a conversation that way. Lots mm. of articles. When you click on the byline, you can get that editor's email. So it's, it's, it's just becoming very close to the source. So close to the news cycle, close to the storytellers. And it's like anything, you know, 10,000 hours of consuming media and consuming where your competitors are, you'll become an expert yourself. That's so good. You've got my, you've already got my brain brain going on what we need to do for, for our company. Um, so that's interesting though, paying attention to the competitors. Never thought about that. Is that unique to, to PR? Because in, in some other philosophies, you'd say, don't pay attention yeah. to the competitor, like focus on who you are, stay in your well, lane. Yeah. I, I, I always say it's a healthy obsession, meaning you, you want to be, you want to be hyper-focused on your brands, but it's also so important to know what your competitors are doing and are saying and what space they're in because the brands that are like the brands that go viral or the brands, whatever, they're, they're different. And so unless you know, you know, what the people who sit on shelf next to you at Whole Foods are saying, it's hard to really find your reason for believing. Uh, but it's a healthy obsession because to your point, you know, you want to say, you want to stay so focused on your product that you don't become, you don't lose sight. But for me, I mean, I'm always looking at, at what competing agencies are doing. It, it keeps me on my game. It gives me ideas. It allows mm. even for collaboration, healthy collaboration. Um, so I think there's definitely like a fine line that you want to make sure you don't cross though. That is awesome. Yeah, that is, uh, I think, very valuable. I definitely took notes for us. I'm sure a few people caught some uh, caught some gold there. Let's uh, let's move to lightning round. Let's move to the, the lightning round. I got five questions for you. Um, okay. Question number one, uh, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? Say yes. Say yes. Say yes to the opportunity, um, you okay. know, and, and, and figure out how to do it. Even if you don't know when you say yes. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I love that one. Uh, number two, what's the single best advice you've gotten about growing your business? I think it's when you see someone amazing and even if you don't have a position for them, hire them because talent is everything and you can always, you know, find a way to engrave them in your organization, but don't pass on great talent. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Uh, what about the worst? I would say this may be a little controversial, but the client is always right or the customer is always right. The customer is not always right. And lots of times they don't want to be right. That's why they've hired you for yeah. feedback, for whatever. So be, being able to like stand your ground, even if it means saying no to your client. Yeah, love that one. Uh, number three, what causes you the most worry leading your organization? I think people, you know, wanting to make sure that we're fostering a company where people are always motivated and growing and challenged and inspired. It's a very competitive industry, PR and just agency life in general. So just making sure we're always creating the best environment that fosters growth. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what's your what's your personal uh, kind of for, your, for the business? What's your personal BHAG? What's your big, hairy, audacious goal for it? 
you know, right or wrong. I never had a BHAG in when I was yeah. growing the business. Um, but I would say my BHAG now is now that, you know, we're part of Power Digital and there's so many service lines. It's truly having the best in class service line for every single part of the, the consumer journey. A lot of agencies that are huge, people are like, oh, go to them just for this, but don't go to them for that. Like they're just good in that. And I'm really proud that we're part of an organization that just has killer talent. So it's just continuing to foster our talent and be, you know, a best in class agency that um, offers like irrefutable value for everything we do. Yeah. I love that one. Uh, Number five, if you could hop in a DeLorean, you're going to go back to the past. Tell yourself one thing from the driver's side window as you, as you fly by, Uh, when would you go back and what would you, what would you say to yourself? I'd say chill the F out. Um, it's going to be okay. Um, and that would be every day for the last six years. Um, I mean, there's similar to what we said earlier. It's so hard sometimes to see the forest from the trees. It's so hard to see the the bigger things when you're caught in the day-to-day grind and you get so caught up and in things that are real and matter, but, um, you know, the amount of stress is, it was not healthy. And I think I have a little more perspective now and I wish I could just tell myself like, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah, man. So good. Yep. That's advice I've having to give to myself constantly. My friend, uh, that actually came from a question that question came from an exercise my friend does often, but he does it a little bit in reverse where, he, if he's really stressed out, he'll ask what uh, the 10-year version of him, like from now, uh, 10 yeah. years older, 15 years older, he'll say, like, what would I say to myself right now? Which is where that question came from us. I just yeah. loved it. It's always been, it kind of taps into a deeper wisdom at some point. The part of your your person or brain that's not being motivated by fear right now or lack or loss. Um, yeah. So, you know, one thing we just sent out to, uh, I'll end with this to encourage you as well. So we have a founder, uh, an email just for founders. And I sent them a little message of encouragement and it came from our mentor, Randy Dobbs, uh, who just reminded us what we've survived this year. And we were in this yeah. great call, you know, uh, talking about new, exciting opportunities and getting his wisdom on it and challenges. And he just stopped us and said, like, I, don't, I first need you guys just to stop and like recognize how much has happened yeah. since the beginning of the year. And do we need to take time and like be thankful and proud of ourselves and proud of your team. Yeah. Um, and I just felt that with you when you were talking about like having a baby in a pandemic and being on the doorstep of landing probably the biggest deal of your career up to this point and it getting put on pause and how uncertain that probably felt. And then what's going to happen to my business as a result of the economy. And like, I just want to say, like, I hope you've, I hope you've paused and given yourself the credit uh, yeah. that you deserve for juggling all that you've juggled and that your team deserves for rallying together and doing hard things and surviving discomfort uh, and ambiguity. Um, so I just want to give you that. that uh, oh, I thank you, Drew. That's, that's really kind. And I think that's a good reminder for everyone. It's so easy to like mourn the losses versus celebrating the wins. And like, yes. why do we do what we do if we don't find joy in it? And if we don't like pat ourselves on the back, like it's yeah. masochistic if we just do this to, to suffer. And so I think that's a great lesson for anyone who's still standing Mm -hmm. after this year. I mean, no one could have predicted this year would have unfolded the way it did. And I think people have found silver linings and have innovated and have, you know, made lemonade out of lemons. And I think it's given us all some, some tough skin. So as we go into 2021, I think we all know there's, there's, there's so much more that we can do and that we've really been through the fire and we're all still standing. That's right. 
And that's the one thing. It's like, what a, what a tragedy that would be if we survived something like this. That's one every hundred years and it didn't lead to more confidence. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, that's a, that'd be a loss. That'd be a lost opportunity where it's like, that could have given you confidence of look what we could navigate. So why would we be afraid of this? And the other one is just that idea of you cultivate what you celebrate. So the missed opportunity of being able to cultivate things by stopping and recognize, I, I, so I have three kids. Yeah. We all have kids here. And one of the hardest things, I was reading a parenting book. Don't remember which one because there's 9,000 of them, but it was good. And it was talking about we often give attention to negative stuff. You know, yeah. we give more attention to the, the behaviors we're trying to correct. And they're like, what would happen if you gave equal or more attention to the things you'd like to see continue? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's so true in leading a team as well, where it's like, mm-hmm. man, are we giving like extra attention and celebration to the traits we want to see continue to grow? Um, yeah. So anyways, uh, we, we're about to recast, re-kick off the podcast conversation when we're, we're closing. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's lots of, lot of good chatters. I mean, parenthood and entrepreneurship are, often go hand in hand. So what sure. you learn from one, you often leverage with the other. And God bless you for having three kids, two kids is, is a lot. So three kids is huge. Man, yeah. I, my wife is a rock star. We've been in this together, which is always true. And yeah. it's been cool to be at home and be in this together. But before yeah. school got back, we're, we're fortunate that two out of three of our kids are in school right now. It was, at, like you said, it was an absolute shit show. Crazy. And I had to close the yeah. door from eight to five and just be her with the kids alone in a house that couldn't go anywhere. And so yeah. uh, just, again, that we just have so much respect for, oh, yeah. for you and for, for our, our spouses and stuff. But um, Sarah, thank you so much for taking time, jumping on here, sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, this has definitely been a favorite interview for us. And I know our listeners are going to get so much out of it. So thank you again. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Jordan. It was fun. Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.